Okay, we're studying uh, John's Gospel, Chapter 2. Last week, I brought you a message entitled, uh, The Two Governors. This passage talks about the governor at the wedding. You remember the wedding. You remember how we spoke about the fact that uh, the mother of the Lord Jesus, Mary, and the Lord Jesus and the 12 disciples were invited to this wedding. And what I tried to do last week was impress upon all of us how famous Jesus Christ was. He was incredibly famous. And the truth is, when you read carefully this passage and you read about this governor who had no clue how that water became wine, uh, is really the Lord's way of just showing us the contrast between leaders that really do not know what's going on when it comes to the truth of God's word as compared to his people, those that serve him. And so the title of the message last week was The Two Governors in this passage. And the other governor is really... uh, Uh, seen over in Psalm 22, if you wanted to just take a glance at it, it it tells us who the real governor, the real true host was at this wedding. It was Jesus Christ. Because in Psalm 22 and verse 28, it says, For the kingdom is the Lord's. And he is the governor among the nations. He's the governor among the nations. And so it's a mistake to read this chapter and not realize something about the two governors and the contrast between the two. Um, So that's the first thing that we wanted to pay attention to And again, the second thing was the fame of the Lord Jesus. And we looked at just a number of things where this is emphasized, where great multitudes followed him everywhere. And his fame was not just during the three and a half years that he actually ministered. Uh, He began to be famous when he was 12 years old. That's when he was found in the temple, you know, conversing with the the doctors of the law and uh, asking them questions that they really didn't know the answers to. And so he was not only asking questions, not because he didn't know, but he was asking questions because you got to be pretty smart to ask the questions that matter. And he knows how to put questions in our own mind that matter. But in his genius, he provides us the answer in his word to the questions. And so um, 
Another thing that I pointed out to you, and I just want to reflect on just a few of these things so that it stays fresh in our minds. Um, we usually think of the 12 disciples as the ones that the Lord sent out by two into uh, the whole region roundabout, uh, working miracles, healing people, and so forth. But we learn in Luke chapter 10 that the Lord sent out 70 disciples. And they weren't just preaching. They were working miracles. And if you read that section there in Luke chapter 10, we're not going to turn to it again, but uh, if you want to make note of that, this intensifies uh, why this is 2023, which... I tried to illustrate last week, I think, with Brother Benny and the tape measure. And we turned the tape measure and the extension of the tape measure from 10 feet away to uh, really an example or illustration of our calendar. And so both ends have to have equal reality to be meaningful. You can't have 2023 unless you have one. And that's the significance of the illustration. Uh, this is uh, uh, 2023 years after the most amazing events in all of human history. And so you had incredible witness with many infallible proofs of the identity of Jesus Christ, which is what the whole New Testament is devoted to, and that is proving his identity. The key thing in studying the New Testament is the question the Lord asked the disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Anytime you read the word visitation in the New Testament, it carries the idea of how the world had no clue who he was. As a matter of fact, he was a stranger that was visiting the earth and the Lord rebuked people for not knowing the day of their visitation visitation well a visitor is somebody that you might know about generally speaking but you seldom think about them until all of a sudden they show up for a visit well this is the Lord's way of illustrating what it was like when he came. He was somebody that just dropped in and people really didn't know a thing in the world about him. When you live with somebody on a regular basis and talk with somebody on a regular basis, you really get to know them. That's not the way it was when the Lord Jesus was here. He came to his own and his own received him not. As a matter of fact, those in his own household didn't really know him. 
they knew him in a fashion, but they didn't really know him. The way Mary got to know him by sitting at his feet and hearing his word is so important to understand that, not only in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with one another. Um, <clears throat> to further emphasize this point of the fame of Jesus Christ and the importance of this so that we can understand that uh, <clears throat> we're not talking about history that possibly happened. We're talking about history that most certainly happened. Absolutely it happened. Exactly the way it's recorded. And uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was standing before Festus and Agrippa, the Apostle Paul made the statement that none of those, these things or those things are hidden from him, speaking to Festus, Agrippa, Agrippa in the same audience of the sound of his voice, and then he says, for this thing was not done in a corner. That is a profoundly important statement. And the reason is because even nailed over the head of the Lord Jesus, in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, this is the king of the Jews the king of the Jews. Why would the Lord inspire in his word that it was written and it was nailed up over the head of the Lord Jesus in Hebrew and Greek and Latin? It's because the whole world knew that this thing was not done in a corner. What happened? He was crucified in broad open daylight on a hill at the most festive time in Jewish culture, which is the Passover. Hundreds of thousands of people knew all about it. And I'm telling you, it's these kinds of thoughts that are so important in realizing that God, who created a boundless creation with no borders whatsoever. Um, and being the eternal God and putting eternity in our hearts, how do, how do you find a midpoint to eternity when it comes to place or when it comes to time? How do, you, how do you look at eternity, something that has no borders on either end? Where's the middle of it? Well, we don't know. If time is eternal, if God lives in the eternal present, then is there a middle? How, how do we, with our 
earthly minds function without a reference point? Well, we can't. We have to have a reference point because we're bound in this dimension of space, time, and matter. And God knows that. And that's why he came into the dimension of time, being outside of time, being the creator of time, and he divided time. I know that I repeat this a lot, but I'm going to tell you something, folks. What we're reading about here in this Bible is profound beyond imagination. And these thoughts are profound beyond imagination, not because I'm saying them, because they're in this book. And we need to be able to take this profoundness to those that we witness to and teach people these things because faith without a reason has no power. And if we're going to go witness to somebody and, and hope that they're going to be so impressed with what they discover from God's word that they become converted, I mean radically converted, to think about life in a way that's different from the way they've ever thought about it before. We're going to have to take them a conversation that's going to pin them to the wall so that they don't really know what to say to gainsay or resist what you said. They're going to have to live with it. These are the things that we need to be praying for every day, that the, that the Lord would, would design and create for us opportunities to witness for him. And the Lord will open those doors. He will. If we want to do it, if we want to go through that door, he will, he will create that door that no man can shut. He will certainly do that. But when we go through that door, we don't want to embarrass the Lord. We don't want to embarrass ourselves as his servants. We want to be able to say something that's going to absolutely nail them to the wall. That's what we want. And I believe we find some of these kinds of thoughts right here in this passage. I think we certainly do. And so if we can learn these things and memorize these things uh, so that they become tools, as it were, that we can reach out and get hold of from time to time and use it to work on people's minds, these are tools for working on people's minds. And so just remember, there's incredible significance to what was nailed over the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a suggestion to Pilate to take it down. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't take it down. I'll tell you why he wouldn't take it down. It's because God Almighty controls everybody. God Almighty would not let him take it down. That's important to understand, too. Um, 
The only other thing I want to mention is John's Gospel, chapter 21, and the very last verse. It's a profoundly important verse. Uh, let, let's look at it, as a matter of fact. Uh, once again, I think we did last week. But let's put our eyes on it, because I'm telling you, this is one profound statement right here that, again, gives us so much more emphasis on how famous Jesus Christ was and how well he was known. Verse 25, the last chapter of John's Gospel, and there are also many other things which Jesus did now, it's important to notice that word. You ought to draw a circle around the word did, and here's the reason. It's because it carries the idea of something that happened. Something that happened. The truth happens. A lie does not happen. And that's how you're supposed to think about it. The truth is what happens. When something happens, you can't make it unhappen because it's already happened. It's now engraven in time and history in a way that it cannot be removed because it happened. If you pump some, punch somebody in the mouth, if you... If you pull the trigger on the gun and shoot somebody, that's something that has happened and you cannot make it unhappen. It has happened. And that's the force of that word did. It's a powerful word. He says, the which, if they should be written, every one of the things that he did. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. That to me is one amazing statement. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at that and just sat back in my chair and just tried to let it sink in what the Lord is saying. And you need to do that right now. You need to sort of just sit back and park on that just a minute and let that sink in. That the world, with all the space that there is in the world, with our knowledge of the hundreds of millions and billions of books that are in libraries all over this world. That is a drop in the bucket of what it would take to fill the world with the books that should be written of all that he what? Did. I'm telling you folks, the fame of Jesus Christ is beyond imagination. It is beyond imagination. And, and the reason it is like this is because God 
can see the future. He can see faces burning in hell right now. Now, I don't know quite how to handle what I'm saying to you right now, but I've got a sort of a, a little bit of a grip on it. Because somehow or other, the Lord can see the end of everybody's free will choice as to whether they're going to receive him or not receive him. But can you imagine just thinking about it from the human standpoint? If you see somebody that you love fixing to do something tragic, where all of a sudden they're going to either lose their arms or possibly fall out of a real tall tree or a building or a scaffold they're standing on and you see something fixing to happen, and you so much do not want it to happen because you love them. And they're so close to you. They're precious to you. Or you see somebody flying down the highway that you care about. Maybe your own child flying down the highway in a car. Not paying attention. Sometimes our children do that. And they pull out the cell phone for whatever reason. And. They're flying down the highway 60 miles an hour, having no idea how quickly they can leave the road and get killed or kill somebody else. And if we at home could see that precious child of ours going down the highway, getting ready to answer that phone, if we could actually see it, we would like to just shout at them and say, don't answer the phone, don't answer the phone. You're fixing to lose your life. This is what the Lord is really telling us concerning his foreknowledge. He can see tragedy fixing to happen. He can see the faces burning in hell forever with no possibility of escape. But he would nevertheless go to the cross of Calvary and die for the sins of the whole world. Because he was not willing that any should perish. But all come to repentance. The Lord is a very emotional God. He weeps. He has sorrow. And, and it's all over the pages of his word. And it's so important for us to understand why at that first century he did so many things to prove that he was the savior of the world just like John the Baptist said behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world and he comes into this world and he sees people as we're going to see in this second chapter in the verses that follow. The tragedy of the human mind and its puny understanding of everything. What do we know? Nothing. 
And the Lord comes into this world knowing everything, everything, able to do anything, even save us from the most horrible uh, future. And, uh, and he would go to the cross and for the joy set before him, he would endure the cross, despising the shame, so that we could be saved. And so, why wouldn't it be the case that he would provide so much evidence that the world could not contain the books? That really could be written, the word is should, but that carries the same idea as could be written of all that he did. That's a lot of evidence, folks. A lot of evidence. Think about it. Think about how much evidence that is. So let's go down to verse 12 and we'll pick up on some new thoughts here. After this, after the, the wedding at Cana, where he turns the water into wine, which is a symbol of joy in Scripture. That's what it symbolizes, is joy. The wedding is a type of how much the Lord loves us. As we see symbolizing marriage when we finally find that person that we want to live with for the rest of our life and no one else, just that person. When the Lord created us in his image, when he died upon the cross, if you're not careful, you'll lose the impact of God's love for the individual by thinking about the world collectively. Because when you're in a big crowd, you're not the focus. But the Lord has written the Bible in such a way that we're to learn that he is so big, so, so infinite in his understanding. He's omniscient. And his omniscience is such that he can put total focus upon you and everybody else in the whole world at the same time. As though you were the only one on it, on the earth, the only person on the earth, the only one that he would go to the cross of Calvary and die for. That's how big God is. Uh, we spent some time trying to look at the largeness of God. And we'll touch on that a little bit more in just a minute. But you remember when David wanted to build him a house. And the Lord tells him, you can't build me a house. How can you build me a house? Uh, the heaven of heavens cannot contain me. How can you build me a house? 
And so we spent some time looking at the largeness of God and our smallness because of Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10. Who has despised the day of small things? Well, God doesn't despise his day of small things because he can put his infinite understanding and all the attributes that he has, his omnipresence, his power, on one person. But he can do it on every particular that he's ever created. So much so that he knows every hair on your head, every blade of grass, every atom. in a creation that has no borders. Can you imagine that? Do we really even begin to understand what omniscience is? I don't think so. The only thing we can do is sit and meditate on it for long periods of time to take it in. And when you go out here sometime, walk across the grass, and you look down and you see an ant colony, there isn't anything about a single ant that he doesn't know about from beginning to end. Every single one of them. If ants have a soul, and they probably do, in ways that we don't think about or know about. God said that animals have a soul. Solomon talked about it in Ecclesiastes. I think it's what? Is it chapter 3 or somewhere in there? He talks about the soul of man that goes upward and the soul of the beast that goes downward. Well, it can't go downward if he doesn't have one. So do birds have a soul? Do ants have a soul? <clears throat> Does the bumblebee have a soul? Does God love the bumblebee? How big is God? Well, he's big enough that as far as you are concerned, sitting out here in this church today, in his mind, you're the only one here. And he's that big. And everything that he did, that we read about in this book, he did for you alone. But when you begin to comprehend the omniscience of God and the omnipotence of God, then you can see how he died for the sins of the whole world, and you can begin to look at it collectively without losing the emphasis upon the particulars, the one, as compared to the many. This is how we need to think about these things. 
And so in verse 12, let's go back to it. After this, he went down to Capernaum. Now, when you read a phrase like that, he went down, you're to think of it in terms of the difference between going up. When the Lord uses the word Jerusalem, it's always up to Jerusalem. It's never down to Jerusalem. You'll never read it that way. You always go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because God, again, in his style of writing, chooses every word to carry a message, every single word. Whether it makes sense to us or not, it doesn't matter. And so certain places he's going down, and down always carries the idea of not the best way, not the best direction. Whatever is about to follow is not going to be as good as going the other direction up. The Lord wants to bring us up and not down. After this, he went down to Capernaum. And I should not think that it would be strange to us that what we're going to read in the following verses is, sure enough, down as compared to the wedding at Canaan. Because the wedding at Cana was symbolic of joy, where the Lord turns the water into wine. And so let's read a little further and discover why the word down is exactly the way it was just explained. It's going the opposite direction of joy. And you'll see this. And so it says, And his mother and his brethren and his disciples, they go with him to Capernaum. And they continued there not many days. wonder why that would be. Well, that's part of the significance of down from Cana. To Capernaum. And then we begin to realize that there's a problem. It's verse 13. And the Jews pass over. The Jews pass over. Well, that's a problem. Because the Passover had been changed from the Lord's Passover to the Jews' Passover. There's a difference. If you were to turn to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, you'll see that the Passover that was celebrated when they left Egypt was called the Lord's Passover. It's not the Jews' Passover. It's not our Passover, it was his Passover. And so Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, 
gives you a contrast to this language. And so the Lord is, is showing us why this journey from Cana to Capernaum is down. It's down the wrong way. The people down there are doing wrong. They're thinking wrong. Have you ever thought much about what the word Passover means? Well, if you stayed over there in Exodus chapter 12, in verse 23, it actually teaches you what Passover actually represented. Well, what it actually represents in that 23rd verse of the 12th chapter is the fact that God's wrath was positioned to be poured out not only upon the Egyptians, but on the Jews. With the exception of those who had the blood put on the posts, the doorposts, the overhead and the side posts of the entrance of the door of their home. And if they did not have that blood applied to that door of their home, if they had not entered the door, and the door was a symbol of the door that we read about in John's Gospel when he said, I am the door, that door meant something to them in their home. It meant Jesus Christ. And they had passed through the blood And they had the precious hope of eternal life because they did. They applied the blood. And so it tells us in verse 23 that the Lord's wrath would pass over and the destroyer would not come into that house where the blood was applied. That's an Old Testament teaching on the significance of the door, which is Jesus Christ, and the blood that he would shed, that if they would just choose with their free will to do what he said to do and apply the blood, then they could be saved. And like it was, was the case with the Philippian jailer, uh, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And everybody that's in that house that believes what you as a leader teach your children to believe. And if they believe it, they'll be saved. So the Passover that we're reading about here, the Jews' Passover, was a puny little finite mind <clears throat> trying to figure out, okay, I believe there's a God in heaven, but I believe if he's truly a loving God, it would be virtually impossible for him to not love me because I am a lovable person. 
And this is exactly the nature of every single person that's ever been born. I remember a, an acquaintance of mine, he was, I considered him to be a close friend because I spent quite a bit of time with him. He's a photographer guy. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in his house and witnessed to him. And the last, last time that I sat down with him and talked to him, he had beer cans all over the place, smoked as a chain smoker, and uh, I, I would go over there and sometimes I couldn't hardly breathe to be a testimony to him. But I was trying to witness to him because he was not doing real well, health-wise. And I tried to witness to him, and I finally got to that point where I was, you know, you, you come to a point where a person's got to face truth. truth. Why do we need to be saved? Do we have a problem? You might be right. We got a problem. Anytime the word Savior is mentioned in the Bible, you got somebody that's in bad trouble. Why do they call a lifesaver a lifesaver? Down at the, the pools or the oceans shore because he saves lives from death that's why so the word savior carries a horrible situation when you think about it when somebody needs to be saved it's the situation is somebody's in dire straits, and if help does not arrive, then a life is going to be lost. And that's what's meant by, by Savior. Well, I was witnessing this guy. You know what he said to me? And it was his final word. He said, well, I believe that I'm a pretty good person. And that was it. I never saw him alive again. He died. There was a rich man that I witnessed to one time. And I loved him. I, I thought a lot of him. I'm not going to mention any names. It would not be in a good thing. But he was very special to me, and I, I spent time uh, with him. He was a very wealthy man. And as a matter of fact, he even asked me to photograph his daughter's wedding. And I felt very honored that he would want me to do that. And then I found out that he was dying of cancer. 
And so I went over to his house to visit with him in his home. And he was sitting in there in the kitchen. His wife showed me where he was, and I went in, and I tried to be as careful as I could in my words to him to not put him on the edge and make him feel uneasy with why I was there. I took a photograph with me over there to give him just to uh, make my intentions uh, uh, not so blunt, to get a little bit more of a welcome, you know, and he was sitting there eating a, a, a baked potato. And he ate a little bit of it. And he said, let's just go into the living room. And we'll sit down in there together. And so I followed him into the living room. We sat down. And I started talking to him a little bit, trying to tell him a little bit about my journey in life, and I had heard that he, you know, had a, a sickness that he didn't, he was not going to recover from, and I felt like that I was close enough to him that I could at least talk a little bit about that, but I didn't know how far I could go, and there was a tenseness in the air. I could feel it beginning to creep in a kind of resistance to the spirit that was in me that wanted to reach out to him. I so much wanted to reach out to him and have a conversation with him. I so much wanted him to listen and receive what I wanted to tell him because I loved him. And my hope was that he would be in heaven one day and we could spend eternity together but not if he didn't receive Jesus Christ. And so I began to tell him about a little bit about my journey and what I had discovered. And that I had learned that life is not so much about religion as it is about the truth. The truth. What is truth? And he sat there with interest as he listened a few minutes. And, and finally, he began to realize exactly why I was there. That I might have thought that somehow or other he was not ready to meet God. And so as I proceeded in the conversation, he finally just stretched out his hand. He didn't say anything. He just stretched out his hand just like that. And he looked right at me. And he didn't say anything for a second or two. He just put his hand out there like that. That's what policemen do when they're directing traffic and when they put the hand out there like that. You know what that means. It means stop. It means stop. And so I stopped and I waited and he put his hand down and he said, Dwight, um, I feel very comfortable with what's fixing to happen. 
and I don't think we need to talk any further. And he stopped that conversation. He ended it right there. Now, there was no doubt in my mind when I left that house, I left behind me a man who's lost. About a week later, he died. He sure did. He died. I believe that man lost his soul forever. A person that will not talk to you about this message, this Passover. And what Jesus Christ did for us and the passionate love that he has for us, that individual is in bad shape, bad shape. That's been several years ago now. There have been several. I could stand up here and tell you about several different people that I've talked to like that, where I got exactly the same response. But I felt like the Lord wanted me to go over there, and I did. I sure did. I could not stay home. I was riding down the highway, and it was as though, you're going to have to do this. This is what I want you to do. And so I went over there. I sure did. And I was rejected. And I had to deal with those feelings after I left. I've never felt so low in all my life. When you want to witness to somebody that you care about, and you have to leave their presence... You see, what's living in us is the, the life of Christ. And that sorrow and that emptiness that I felt inside, I am certain as I can be, is the sorrow and uh, sadness of God Almighty. And I believe that man one day is going to stand before God and he's going to tell him how he personally went to visit him a week before he died. And he went to visit him in his servant. In his servant. That's right. When the Ethiopian eunuch was in that buggy, God Almighty went to visit him. It was not Philip. It was God Almighty who knew the particulars. He knew the individual. He knew all about that man. Just like the Lord knew the woman at the well. I must needs go to Samaria. And off he went. For what? The world? No. One woman. A despised Samaritan. And the Lord loved her. Sure did. And he went down there and uh, saved her soul. Sure did. And she became a tremendous testimony. Well, anyway, back to John chapter 2. 
Verse 13, the Jews' Passover, the Jews' Passover. This was not the Lord's Passover now because, you see, they had turned the, the, uh, the temple into a house of merchandise. What was important to them was money. The Lord described this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. God or mammon is one or the other. You're going to worship one of the two. You can't have two masters. You're going to have one or the other. It's going to be me or it's going to be mammon. I can remember a time that I didn't understand why the Lord said you're going to worship mammon. That didn't make sense to me until one day it dawned on me exactly what it meant. And so I'll repeat myself, if you remember what I've said about it already. Mammon is money which enables the human will to be done. And so the focus is not really the money. The focus is the age-long contest between the will of man versus the will of God. And that's what mammon symbolizes. Money, it destroys people. It'll destroy you quicker than anything else in the world. And there are people who get out of the will of God, who profess to know the Lord, but they get out of the will of God, they go places for a job, and the Lord Jesus becomes secondary to the money. They'd rather have the money than they had to have fellowship with the Lord and be where the convicting power of the Holy Spirit tells them that they need to be. Folks, when we leave this world, we're not going to take that dollar bill with us. And when somebody puts you in the box... You can't be trusting your will and what you want. Balaam wanted to die the death of the righteous. But he died and went to hell. And it was all over money. For reward, he wanted to curse the children of Israel. For reward, for money. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't curse them. But he wanted to. And Balaam said, I want to die the death of the righteous. But he didn't. At some point in life, we have to decide which side we're really on. Are we on the Lord's side? Are we on the side of what we want more than anything else? I'm going to tell you something, folks. That is a disastrous choice to make. We need to totally surrender to the Lord. And his will for our while. Wow, I didn't realize time was gone. I,
I get to thinking about these things, uh, I lose sense of time. We'll come back next week and we'll pick up here. If you'll read in advance, you'll discover why it was down, not up. Benny dismisses, brother. Father, we do thank you for your many blessings. We thank you so much for your word and the expository example that you've shown us this morning. And we pray that you would help us to uh, be able to take these things and use them in our daily lives and to understand that the true love that you have for us and especially those that are lost. We just pray your blessing to help us to be a witness and testimony to those that do not know. And there's so many that are there. We pray that you would help us to honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.